Our gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 33, 44 to 46, and 51 to 52. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Chinua Achibe, the great Nigerian novelist who wrote the book Things Fall Apart, said, Until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. As someone who lived under colonial rule, Achibe knew that the powerful cannot be trusted to tell the truth about themselves. This is a great lesson of our time. We are being asked in so many ways to re-examine what we've been taught from new perspectives, particularly from the viewpoint of those who have been conquered. While it is painful to hear the history of the hunt from the lion's perspective. There is great blessing in it as well. From his Nazi prison cell, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, it remains an experience of incomparable value that we have for once learned to see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of the outcasts, the suspects, the maltreated, the powerless, the oppressed and reviled in short, from the perspective of suffering. See, for Bonhoeffer to see history from the perspective of suffering was to see with the eyes of Christ, because Christ is one with suffering. As we return to the story of Jacob and his complicated polygamous marriage, it's clear to me now that the hunters are Jacob, and his uncle Laban, and Rachel is the hunted. So it makes me wonder, how would she tell this story? In case you didn't know that marriage was an exchange of property in the ancient world, this story makes it abundantly clear. Laban asks his nephew, what shall your wages be for all of this work that you're doing for me? And Jacob says, yeah, I'll take Rachel for seven years of labor. And Laban agrees to this 
plan and tricks Jacob in the process. Instead of giving him Rachel, he sneaks in his less desirable daughter, Leah, instead. And I think the story is actually meant to be funny, that the trickster is getting tricked. But if you hear this story and you cringe a little bit, I think that's, that's good. I'm cringing too. The only way the story is funny is if you take the perspective of the hunters. But if we turn our attention to the hunted, then the joke just doesn't seem funny anymore. I recounted this story to Asher this week and asked him what he thought about it. And he said, people were really terrible back then. And he's not wrong. In recent years, there's been talk in the church of upholding the biblical definition of marriage. And then you come to a story like this, and you should rightly ask yourself, which biblical definition of marriage do you have in mind? Here we have two sisters marrying their first cousin. And if we follow the story just a few verses beyond where we left off, the, the handmaidens of Rachel and Leah get involved in the marriage bed as well. And so before it's over, Jacob will have 12 sons and one daughter from four different mothers, two of whom are sisters. And that's where the 12 tribes of Israel come from. If that's biblical marriage, you can count me out. So how might we view this story from Rachel's perspective? After Jacob has his dream of heaven and earth, becoming one, he heads off to Haran on the hunt for a wife. And on his way there, he finds some shepherds that are gathered around a well, and they brought their sheep there to be watered. And they tell him that you've made it to Haran. And suddenly, Rachel makes her first appearance. She's bringing her father's flocks to the well. Why does she do this? Well, it's because she was a shepherd, according to Genesis 29, verse 9. Now, throughout Scripture, a shepherd is a metaphor for one who leads God's people. Kings are compared to shepherds. God is compared to a shepherd. And in the New Testament, pastors are compared to shepherds. So did you know that there were women shepherds in the Bible? I didn't either until this week. Rachel the shepherd is doing work outside the home amongst other men and she holds her own. Wilda Gaffney says of this overlooked detail of Rachel's background, she writes, shepherding in the Bible is a powerful and dominant metaphor for leading the people of Israel. Civil and religious shepherding are combined in descriptions of messianic leaders in the biblical text. Yeah. Do you see what we miss when we overlook Rachel's perspective? Perhaps it wouldn't have taken the church 1900 years before we started allowing women to be pastors had we been paying attention to Rachel sooner. Jacob sees Rachel and falls for her immediately, presumably because he finds her physically attractive. 
Now, the Bible doesn't often comment on people's physical appearance, but this story points out just how attractive Rachel was and her sister Leah less so. Okay. But did Rachel actually want to be with Jacob? We aren't told, which is really interesting. Jacob's mother, Rebecca, she gave her consent to be married to Isaac back in Genesis 24, but here we never find out if Rachel or Leah consent to this polygamous plot of their fathers. Did they have a choice in this at all? We don't know. We don't know. And that is not good enough. Women's consent was not a great concern of the ancient world. And it's still ignored greatly in our time. Marital rape wasn't outlawed in our country until 1993. Now, how is that possible? Well, because women being treated as property is not simply an ancient worldview. It's still widely prevalent in our world. See, we may think ourselves far from the ancient world, but how far are we from 1993? It is an experience of incomparable value to see the events of world history from below. But it also hurts. It hurts because it reveals whose voices matter and whose do not. When your voice and your will, when your consent are secondary to the men in your life, how human are you? When you are traded like property so that your dad can extract labor from his nephew, what does it say about how your dad values you, much less your husband? Dorothy Sayers wrote a couple of essays back in 1947 entitled, Are Women Human? And we dare not answer that question too quickly because it doesn't matter what we say. It matters what we do. Do we as a church, as a community, as a society, do we treat women as full human beings deserving respect and autonomy over their bodies, their well-being, their future? According to the latest data that we have, the maternal mortality rate in the United States ranks 55th in the world, just behind Russia. And if we compare ourselves to similarly wealthy nations, America ranks last. Let me ask the question again. Are women human? We never find out if Rachel loves Jacob, and I suspect she didn't. We know that Jacob loved her as much as you can love someone who's also your property. We know that Leah wanted Jacob's love and never receives it. And so to not mention Rachel's feelings speaks volumes. I suspect she saw her life and her marriage for what it was, dehumanizing. In a world where women were valued as property and as childbearers, Rachel eventually decides that she wants children too. And after years of infertility, God finally grants Rachel children, Joseph and 
years later, Ben-Oni. Rachel dies in childbirth to her second son, and in her last breath, she names him Ben-Oni, which means son of my suffering. It's a sad name, but it's also a true name. Rachel's life knew much suffering. And Jacob ignores the wishes of his dead wife and renames his son something happier. Benjamin, son of my strength. Even in her death, Rachel's will is secondary to her husband's. The hunter writes the story. It's a sad story. And the only way to make it happy is to ignore Rachel and instead to focus on Jacob. See, he always comes out the winner in the end. But we have done that long enough. It's time to honor the Rachels of our world. Rachel loses her life giving birth to her son. Like so many mothers before her, like so many mothers still today. And we honor their sacrifices by lifting their voices, by grieving their unrealized dreams, by honoring their history, by bearing witness to their suffering. We can create a better world for the women of today. There are some of us who are used to having their stories told, having their stories heard and celebrated. There are some of us who are used to being the center of attention, knowing that our opinions and our dreams matter. And there are some who are used to being overlooked and unheard. And if that's you, Jesus tells a story that I'd like you to hear. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. And what do you think that means? Well, let me sing it to you. I love you today and I love you tomorrow. I love you as deep as the sea. I love you in joy, and I love you in sorrow. You can always come home to me. There once was a man who found him a treasure buried out under a tree. He sold all he had just to own it forever. And the treasure is you, you see. I love you today and I love you tomorrow. I love you as deep as the sea. I love you in joy and I love you in sorrow. You can always come home to me. While others may overlook you, and deny your humanity. Your life matters. Your dreams matter. Your suffering matters. You are God's 
great treasure, one for whom God, God gladly sells it all just to be with you. And no one can ever take that from you. Amen.